and what it means to live in you. In Christ's name. Consequences for conceit. First section, bye-bye, Miss Jerusalem Pie. It was an enigmatic song that had everybody guessing as to its true meanings. John McLean's American Pie topped the charts for weeks in 1971 and has endured through many decades being covered by other well-known artists. Last week, a documentary about it hit the theaters, and McLean finally explained some of the cryptic allusions in it. The song is shot through with religious references. Apparently, according to McLean, who wrote the song, the king with the thorny crown is actually Jesus, not Elvis, as some had speculated. There's an outright reference to the Trinity near the end of the 8-minute, 42-second wonder, which DJs would put on when they needed a bathroom break. Anyway, that goes like, And the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died. Some other religious symbols mentioned, Did you write the book of love? And do you have faith in God above? if the Bible tells you so. Do you believe in rock and roll? Can music save your mortal soul? Jack Flash sat on a candlestick because fire is the devil's only friend. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell and as the flames climbed high into the night to light the sacrificial rite, I saw Satan laughing with delight the day the music died. Commentators have tried to interpret the symbolism, but McLean retorts that it's not a board game. He was being impressionistic. Art is like that. Consider a group of seven painting of an island and lake in Algonquin Park compared with a photograph. The latter is more accurate in detail, but a painter is trying to convey an impression, something besides or beyond the actual number of branches on the tree. What impression do you get from the song, American Pie? To me, a general impression is that of disappointment, aimlessness, and even... Then what? What's life about if there is no final courtroom verdict, no judgment of right and wrong? As McLean sang, the courtroom was adjourned, no verdict was returned. When the music and the dream die, what's to live for? Is the only thing left to get wasted? As the refrain reiterated over and over, them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. Come on, some of you know that one. The Apostle Paul described poignantly the despair and dissipation that a life devoid of reference to God leads to in 1 Corinthians 15.32. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Whiskey and rye, anyone? The first part of that famous refrain goes, 
I buy Miss American Pie, drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Do you recall how last week's reading from the prophet Jeremiah ended? My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Dry levee, broken cisterns. Could there be a connection? In some ways, McLean's famous song paints a picture of a life that has attempted to leave God behind but ends up confronted by despair and disillusionment. Purpose has evaporated. Are humans even designed to endure a life like that? Today's big idea in this message is we ignore the Lord at our peril. We need his comfort and correction. Jeremiah's is the longest book in the Bible, as we said last week. Don McLean's masterpiece held the record for being the longest song to reach number one for almost 50 years. They both used symbolism and repetition and plays on words, although Jeremiah's Hebrew puns are kind of lost on us English speakers. In a way, Jeremiah and McLean were both seers, poets, visionaries, and help us see reality through a different lens. So maybe instead of thinking of Jeremiah as a stuffy, irrelevant, ancient prophet, think of him as Judah's Don McLean, just around 600 B.C., near the time Jerusalem fell. Bye-bye, Miss Jerusalem Pie. His work deserves a Grammy Hall of Fame award. Section, Ignorance, Deceit, and Brazen Rejection. All right, enough pop culture. A lot of you weren't around then anyway, sorry. Let's get to our text. Jeremiah is a protester, but what bothers him is how the people of Judah are defiantly disobeying God. They are silly as a goose. In fact, sillier than a Canada goose. You know how when fall comes and temperatures start to cool, you start to see the big V's overhead and hear honk, honk, honk as geese practice their flying techniques for the trip south. Jeremiah contrasts the Israelites with migratory birds. He says, the birds know better. The Israelites refuse to follow the laws God has set forth for their good. 8, 7. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons and the dove, the swift, And the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. God revealed his ways through Moses at Sinai and reminded the people often through the prophets, but they disregarded the law. How do you stack up against a goose? Are you sillier? Do you have biblical truth hard-coded in your conscience and life goals the way a goose has migratory pathways hard-coded in its instinctual mental channels? If not, what might you do about that? Jeremiah points out five things he sees that are symptoms of the people's deliberate ignorance of God's truth. The lying pen. Verse 8. How can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? Those that were guardians of the scrolls and charged with teaching God's revealed truth were mishandling it, 
misinterpreting it, avoiding those passages which went against popular preferences. Hmm. Do we just read our favorite parts of the Bible and ignore the parts we don't like? Are we like Thomas Jefferson who went through and actually cut out all the parts of his Bible that had anything miraculous to do with them? Next, there's outright rejection of God's word. Verse 9, the wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped. Since they have rejected the word of the Lord, what kind of wisdom do they have? Hmm, What kind of wisdom indeed? Humanistic, I suppose. The kind that fills the shelves in the self-help section of the bookstore. Horoscopes and new age and mindfulness and spiritualism, including tarot cards and psychic readings, are coming into vogue, becoming respectable. The so-called wise ones Jeremiah talks about here rejected God's word. But we are spiritual creatures, so they turn to counterfeits to address that gap in their souls. Verse 10, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. We don't like it when we own property and real estate values fall. We don't like it when we've overspent and gone into debt to buy things and then the interest rates climb and climb. We're not sure about how we feel when we're in the top 1% or so of the wealthiest people on the planet and all these immigrants are eager to come to Canada. Will they take our jobs? Do we seem like fat cats compared to them? Sharing the wealth and justice for the poor is all well and good, but don't ask me to give up any of my hard-earned possessions, please. Greedy for gain. Advertising constantly reinforces it as one of those respectable sins we don't harp on. Our greed is evidenced in one instance by the popularity of gaming and gambling in many forms, including lotteries. Jan and her sister were on the way home from shopping when her sister said she forgot to buy her lottery tickets for the Saturday night drawing. She suggested that they stop at the first lottery retailer they spotted and she could go in and get the tickets. Why don't we save some time, Jan responded. I'll drive by and you can just throw the money out the window. Continue on in verse 10b. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. Truthfulness is foundational for trust and relationship. It's implicit in the second last of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20:16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Jesus describes the devil this way in John 8:44. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Deceit is a standard card in the deck the devil plays. Colossians 3.9 admonishes us, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And these four more overt ways to disobey, the lying pen, rejecting God's word, being greedy for gain, practicing deceit, result in such a damaged and seared conscience that sin doesn't even register with us so as to cause shame or blushing. Jeremiah 8.12. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. 
one thing to commit the sin. It's another thing to not even have it register in our conscience so it makes us ashamed or blush. The phrase brazen harlot is applied to someone who is so practiced and comfortable with sinning, it's so routine to them that they're brazen about it. Their countenance or expression becomes hardened. They've lost the capacity to even show it on their face by blushing. Here, Jeremiah 3.3, 3, Therefore the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. In the case of a guy, Christian counselor John Regeer of Caring for the Heart Ministries used to say when, when a man is habitually immoral, there's a, a certain expression that comes to his face kind of like a smirk. It's a form of conceit, an I know better than God's moral law sort of look. But there are consequences for such corrupt conceit. Section Disobedience Deserving Doom. Again, our main point today is we ignore the Lord at our peril. We need his comfort and correction. The people of Judah disregarded God's law and correction through the prophets. Jeremiah prophesied a handful of consequences that were on the horizon. Verse 10 reminds them of the covenant repercussions for breaking God's law. Moses had warned Israel in Deuteronomy 28.30 the following would happen if they disobeyed the Lord. You will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and ravish her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Now, in Jeremiah 8.10, the Lord states, Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. God is keeping the terms of his covenant. He also, verse 13, I'll take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. The prophets and priests were not dressing the people's moral wound as if it were serious. Instead, they were saying, peace, peace, verse 11. But what would result? Note the connecting word so in verse 12b. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. When Nebuchadnezzar invaded, it was the ruling elite that would suffer the harshest punishment. Verse 14 quotes the people, Why are we sitting here? Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against him. And verse 17, God saying, See, I will send venomous snakes among you, vipers that cannot be charmed, and they will bite you, declares the Lord. Here the, the snakes may be figurative language for the invading army from the north. But poisoned water and Venomous snakes are reminiscent of hardships the Israelites encountered when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and led them through the wilderness. The snakes were a consequence for grumbling. Numbers 21. But even then, Moses, at God's direction, made a bronze snake and raised it on a pole for people to look at and be healed, foreshadowing Jesus' crucifixion for the remission of sins. Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John 3, 14, 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Back to Jeremiah 8, verse 15 predicts only terror as a consequence for people's sin. There are invaders coming, verse 16. The snorting of the enemy's horses is heard from Dan. At the neighing of their stallions, the whole land trembles. They have come to devour the land and everything in it, the city and all who live there. Nebuchadnezzar's forces would have even burned the beloved capital of Jerusalem, tear down the walls, and destroy Solomon's massive, beautiful temple that the people of Judah took such pride in. Verse 20 reflects final abandonment. It's a cry of despair and defeat. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, we are not saved. Typically, if a foreign king was bringing his army to rescue Judah, he would have done it in the spring and summer when conditions were favorable. They didn't march out in winter for such missions. The saying is proverbial. The season's over. The time has passed. It's, it's just not happening. It's a despairing lament. We're not saved. We're goners. We're done for. Nobody's going to help us now. You may not have disobeyed God in exactly the same ways the people of Judah did. Greed, deceit, and so on. But do you feel you've sinned so badly God has abandoned you? Turned his back on you that there's no hope? No matter what you've done, however badly you've messed up, there is no sin too big for the cross of Jesus to handle. He will not abandon you as an orphan if you turn to him and repent genuinely and receive him. He is the God of lost causes and fresh starts. Next section, the paraclete's correction and comfort. Again, the big idea, read it with me if you will. We ignore the Lord at our peril. We need his comfort and correction. Get back on track. First, we need a correct appreciation of God's revealed truth. The God of the universe, the creator who made your ears and tongue and gave you a brain, does not have a speaking problem. He wants to communicate his truth to you. The Bible is our inspired, God-breathed deposit of what he's revealed to his holy prophets and apostles through centuries past. As we read it, the author, by his Holy Spirit, illuminates us here and now as to its meaning and applicability to our daily lives. Look back at Jeremiah 8, 8 again. How can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely? They were partly right in their logic. The law of the Lord makes one wise, except it's not just a matter of having it, like the book you dust and trust, but also heeding it. And the scribe's lying pen was misinterpreting it and not teaching its basics. Jesus held a high view of Scripture and internalized it, being our model in that sense. He once rebuked the religious experts of his day, Mark 12, 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? The Apostle Paul urged his disciple Timothy, who is raising up to be a church leader, not to mishandle God's law like the scribe's lying pen, but 
as in 2 Timothy 2.15. I don't know if we have any Awana grads in the crowd, but this is your Awana verse, a workman able, not ashamed. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. There are many ways to access scripture today, best done as a daily discipline, in a variety of formats, hard copy in several translations or digitally on your phone or in audio format, either by itself or along with many interesting commentaries or devotional guides. Make it your foundation for your day. But faith involves more than just head knowledge. It's been said that the longest distance is the 18 inches between the head and the heart. We need the Holy Spirit's comfort to be our paraclete, one who comes alongside to help, the Spirit of truth, our counselor. See the passages in John 14 to 16 where Jesus describes the Spirit's coming and ministry. For example, uh, verses 8 and 13 in chapter 16. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus promised this counselor, or as some translations put it, comforter, to be with us forever. Jeremiah even refers to God as his comforter. Back before the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah 8.18, O my comforter in sorrow, my heart is faint within me. We need the Lord to provide both correction through Scripture we learn, the Spirit's conviction of guilt when we mess up, and comfort, assuring us that there is grace and forgiveness when we come to God with a contrite heart. Last section, freed from drink and despair. We began by referring to Don McLean's song in which them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, this will be the day that I die. Take God out of the picture and soon some lesser idol will take over your life. Often greed or deceit or addictive substances. So you see these cannabis stores popping up all over the place. that numb that pain of pointless living and give you a temporary, if gradually diminishing, buzz. But addictive substances cannot satisfy our deepest yearnings with regard to origin, destiny, meaning, and morality. Something you put inside you and passes through your system cannot give you significance and security. You need Jesus for that, to give you a new heart. Nicky Gumbel relates this story. At the age of 18, Billy Nolan ran away from the Merchant Navy. He was an alcoholic for... 35 years. For 20 years, he sat outside HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton, that's Nikki's church, drinking alcohol and begging for money. On 13th of May, 1990, he looked in the mirror and said, you're not the Billy Nolan I once knew. To use his own expression, he asked the Lord Jesus Christ into his life and made a covenant with him that he would never drink alcohol again. From that day on, he didn't touch a drop. His life was transformed. He radiated the love and joy of Christ. Like he says, I once said to him, Billy, you look happy. He replied, I am happy because I am free. Life is like a maze, and at last I've found the way out through Jesus Christ. 
Mickey concludes, many people think that if they serve God, they will lose their freedom. In fact, it is the very opposite. Living for ourselves is, in fact, a form of slavery. Serving God in the new way of the Spirit, Romans 7, 6, is the way to find perfect freedom, free to have a relationship with Him and to be the kind of person that deep down you long to be. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for revealing your truth to us through Jeremiah and the other prophets, and most especially through the wonder of your son Jesus, in whom you took on flesh. We confess that like the people in Jeremiah's time, we have sold our souls for greed and deceitfulness to the point we don't even know how to blush. We are so ashamed. We need you to dress our wound, to give the peace we so desperately want. Jesus, send your comforter to renew us and guide us and empower us to live for you, to correct and counsel us each 